Father, we're so thankful for this time together. We thank you, O oh God, um, that we are one together in Christ, um, irrespective of our location. Um, by one spirit, we've been baptized into the same body, and we all drink of the same spirit. So spirit of wisdom and revelation, uh, we just welcome you this morning. We ask you to open our eyes, O oh God, light our candles and enlighten our darkness. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful because you love us so much. You love us as much as you love the Lord Jesus. And as you revealed yourself to him, you reveal yourself to us. Uh, thank you for light and illumination. Thank you for transformation in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning, I am going to be teaching on what I've titled The Technology of Blood. The Technology of Blood. And I'd like us to turn our Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. I'm going to be reading from verses 21 to 26. There's actually a, 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 an interesting verse in this passage um, that uh, I believe would be a good uh, jumping off point for our teaching this morning. Verse 21 says, And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my people go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your firstborn. And it came to pass on the way, at the encampment, that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then, then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. Then he let him go. Then she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Now, this is a very curious um, passage because God has spoken to Moses. He has called him and given his mandate to um, save his people. And he sends him on this, uh, on this um, mission to deliver his people with a mighty hand. And on his way to Egypt, the Bible says the Lord met him and tried to kill him. And, and it resulted in Zipporah saying, you are a husband of blood to me. And she said that, the Bible says, because of the circumcision. Now let's unpack that for a few minutes. You know, God had cut a covenant with Abraham. And, um, and as part of that covenant... Every male child um, in, uh, you know, from his progeny needed to be circumcised. In fact, let's go back real quick to Genesis 17, where the Lord cuts this covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 17, verse 7, uh, the Lord says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and your descendants after you. And then in verse 9, he begins to unfold how this covenant was going to be uh, the sign of the covenant. Verse 9 says, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep 
between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not uh, your descendant. He who is born in your house and who is brought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You know, after humanity lost access to Eden and bound their knees to the devil, God caught a covenant with Abraham. This covenant was a legal means through which a person or a people could come under God's authority, could come under God's protection and receive God's provision even while in a fallen state. In this covenant, um, God will belong to them. He'll be their God and they will belong to him. They will be his people. God, um, through covenant, gave man um, access to benefit from Zion. They had access to benefit from Zion through covenant. Covenant graces, covenant protections were offered or given to the people he was in covenant with. So circumcision was a symbol, a sign of the covenant that had already been cut between God and Abraham and his seed. Circumcision was a symbol of the covenant. This symbol was how each person signed up to the eternal covenant. It's like being given a check, it's got your name on it, and you have to countersign. So this was how they signed up to this eternal covenant, which was already theirs, through um, what had happened between God and Abraham. It was an earthly symbol, but it had eternal ramifications. The progenitor of a race must on the eighth day of his birth have the flesh of his foreskin or his penis cut. And whenever that was cut, the flesh was cut off, there was a shedding of blood, okay, that, that happened um, through that process. And when this happened, this was the way the individual identified themselves as part of this covenant with God. Now you might ask, why was circumcision done on the flesh of the foreskin or of the on the penis of a male? Well, when a man was involved in the sexual process of procreation, what they were doing was as because they, were, they, they had already been circumcised and they had signed up to the covenant through circumcision, 
through the act of the sexual process, they were dedicating their progeny, their descendants, to the covenant. Women were automatically part of the covenant because they were the product of a covenant process by somebody who was part of the covenant um, because they were a product of that process. They were the product of a process of somebody who was already in covenant with God. It is not coincidental, for instance, that the first time a woman is involved in intercourse, there is some bleeding as the hymen is broken, which indicates that they were entering into covenant with that man. So circumcision was a symbol of covenant. But it determined, even though it was a symbol, it determined whether a man and his family would have access to the substance of the Lord, or be cut off. It was an earthly symbol, but it had a spiritual impact. Okay, it had a spiritual impact. Now, according to the rules of covenant, the only way out of a covenant is through death. Your covenant partner was obligated to kill you if for some reason you broke the covenant or you broke the terms of the covenant. Now, this is what was happening in this passage in, um, uh, in Exodus chapter 4. Uh, Zipporah, um, the wife of Moses, was the daughter of Jethro, the priest of Midian. So she was not a Jew. They weren't Jews. And therefore, they did not, she did not understand why her son needed to be subjected to what she may have considered a barbaric act. Why do I need to circumcise my son? Okay. Now, God was going to use Moses to deliver his people. And he said that um, at a time during his interaction with Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart will be hardened. Uh, and he said that he will say to Pharaoh at that time, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So God was going to use Moses to punish the disobedience of Pharaoh. But you know there's a principle in scripture. Paul the apostle mentioned this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 6. He says that we should be ready to punish all disobedience when our own obedience is fulfilled. We should be ready to punish all disobedience when our own obedience is fulfilled. So, um, with respect to his life, his own obedience was not fulfilled because his son Gershom had not been circumcised because his wife did not see any reason why he should be. Now, you know, theologians are, um, are not in agreement about uh, whether the him that God sought to kill was Moses or his son. But somebody was going to die here. Uh, and you may wonder, I mean, why would God... Um, want to kill somebody over something that is a symbol. Circumcision was not, a was not the covenant. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Why would God consider this so important that he was willing to kill Moses or his son uh, because they had not done this physical act? You see, this is not just a symbol. As we've already established, everything God has given us is a portal 
through which we access substance in the eternal realm. That is why Moses was to build a physical tabernacle, for instance, that God said to him must be in exact um, alignment um, according to the dimensions that he had shown him in a vision. It was a physical thing, but it was much more than a physical thing. It needed to align properly with the, uh, with the heavenly substance of the tabernacle in the heavens. This is why the single act of striking a rock, instead of speaking to the rock, cost Moses his life. You see, there was a reason why specific protocols were given in how everything was done. In the priestly office, for instance, in the operation of the priests in the tabernacle, there was a reason why everything was done the way it was. Because by obeying the, um, the, the, the instructions, they were aligning earth with heaven. Uh, and as a result, the glory of the eternal realm um, could come and flood the earth. And if things were out of line, it could result in physical death. So Zipporah, when this happened, when God came and sought to kill, um, to kill Moses or Gershom, Zipporah circumcised her son immediately. She didn't call for a medic or some expert or concern herself with the sanitary conditions of, of the flint that she found. Her son or his father were about to be killed. As soon as the circumcision was done, the Lord let him go. This action had brought alignment in the family. They were back under God's protection and God's provision. They were under God's authority again. And they could once again be used by God to execute his judgment on the earth. Moses could punish all disobedience according to the mandate of God because his obedience was now complete. Now this was when Zephorah made the statement. As she cast the flesh from her son's genitals at the feet of her husband. And I'm sure at this time the son was no, no doubt screaming in pain. She said, surely you are a husband of blood to me. Surely you are a husband of blood to me. Indicating that in her years with Moses, blood was a common feature in their interaction. You know, blood is a foundational, vital substance in the kingdom of God. Yeah? In the kingdom of God. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, you see blood being talked about. Why blood? What is it about blood? What is the substance that blood gives us access to in heaven? Because everything that we are given here is a portal for something in the eternal realm. Why blood? What is the substance that blood gives us access to in heaven? If everything is a copy, what is blood a copy of? How do we transact with blood? We've talked about transactions. Transactions happen from heaven to earth. Reality flows in one direction. How do we transact with blood? What is the substance that the accurate use of blood um, will give us access to. That is what we want to begin to uncover 
from today. Let us look at our, what I consider our text scripture, which is in Leviticus chapter 17. Let's look at Leviticus 17 verse 10. It says, And whatever man of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell among you, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. So he says that it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Let me read the New Living Translation of the same passage. It says, and if any native Israelite or foreigner living among you eats or drinks blood in any form, I will turn against that person or cut him off from the community of your people. For the life of the body is in its blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. That is why I have said to the people of Israel, you must never eat or drink blood. Neither you nor the foreigners living among you. You know, when the Bible says that the life of the flesh is in the blood, the word life there is the Hebrew word nefesh, and the word nefesh literally means the soul. That is the word for soul. So the soul of the flesh is in the blood. So, for instance, in Genesis 2.5 or 2.7, where the Bible says that um, God um, breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, um, the word soul there is nefesh. So the life of the flesh or the soul of the flesh is in the blood. Now let's talk about the soul for a minute. Now we know that the soul of a, uh, a, the, uh, a man is part of uh, the tripartite uh, composition of man. We know that man is a tripartite being um, as opposed to being bipartite, um, which means that uh, where the soul and the spirit are used inter interchangeably. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the Bible says that the very God of peace will sanctify you wholly or completely. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So man is a tripartite being. He has spirit, soul, and he lives in, uh, or he has a physical body. But you see, the soul and the spirit are so closely related that in Certain places in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, they, they, they appear to be used almost interchangeably. Okay, so for instance, in uh, in Proverbs twenty twenty seven, where the Bible says, "The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost depths of his heart." The word translated "spirit" 
is actually the Hebrew word nefesh, okay? So the, 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 the spirit and soul, uh, even though we know in scripture that they are separate, um, in the Old Testament, or they're really so, they're, they're closely related that sometimes they are, they are used interchangeably. And that's why even in Hebrews 4.12, the Bible speaks about the sharpness of the word um, being able to divide even the soul and the spirit. Okay, so the Logos is sharp enough to even divide the soul and spirit because they are so closely related together. Um, but one thing that we're all agreed on is that both the spirit and the soul are part of the spiritual part of a man, while the body is the physical part. Okay, so the spirit and the soul are part of the spiritual part of a man while the body is the physical part. So what keeps the soul and spirit in the body is the blood. In other words, when anybody's blood is completely shared from their body, the soul and spirit are ejected from that body and the life is lost. So a physical action, the shedding of blood, causes a spiritual effect the ejection of the spiritual life force um, forever from this earthly plane. And, and that life force goes back to God. And that's what Ecclesiastes 12, 7 talks about. It talks about the, the dust uh, returning to the earth where it came from and the spirit going back to God who gave it. Now, if you look at um, Leviticus 24, verse 19. I mean, so far, you know, we have looked at the fact that the blood has been given um, for the atonement of the soul. The blood has been given for the atonement of the soul. And the life of the, the, the flesh is actually in the blood. So when blood is shed, when blood is shed, it's not just about the shedding of blood. When blood is shed, there is a soul that leaves that physical body. We'll talk some more about this. Look at um, Leviticus 24, verse 19. It says, if a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he caused disfigurement of a man, so it shall be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it. But whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. So basically, this is God talking about the principles of justice. For there to be justice, the loss must be paid for. And this is not just human justice but it's also divine justice. Whoever kills an animal must restore it. There must be a restoration, animal for animal. But whoever kills a man will himself be put to death. Where a soul is taken, um, a soul must be taken for there to be justice. A life for a life, a soul for a soul. Now, in Leviticus 17 that we read earlier, it says it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Or, like the New Living Translation puts it, it is the blood 
given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. I'll say that again. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. Remember, blood is the life of a soul. Whenever blood is shed, there is a spiritual thing that happens. There's a spiritual counterparty transaction. A soul is lost. Uh, and that soul actually goes back to God. Whenever blood is shed, a soul is lost. You know, animals actually have souls. They may not have spirits, but they have souls. And that soul is not just physical. You know, there are ancient cultures where when men hunt and kill an animal... Before they skin that animal, they actually pray and recognize that a soul was taken by them for food. So when an animal is killed there is a, and their blood is shed, it's not just the blood that is shed, okay? Um, you know, the Bible says that the blood makes atonement for the soul. That animal's soul actually is given up um, as an atonement for the sin that was committed. You see, when we talk about atonement, atonement speaks about a restoration of fellowship. A restoration of fellowship by making equitable reparation for the injury that has been caused. So you cause an injury. Um, for there to be atonement, um, like we saw earlier um, in, uh, in the other Leviticus passage, you, 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 um, you, you disfigure an animal, another, um, you disfigure a person, uh, a person must be disfigured, you kill a person, a soul must be lost um, to bring atonement or to cause justice um, in, in the effect of that murder. So atonement speaks about the restoration of fellowship by making equitable reparation for the injury that has been caused. Now, when we talk about sin, sin causes injury to God. And sin is not physical. Sin is, first of all, spiritual. Because it is an action that is a rebellion against God, and it's a rebellion against God's intention of our creation, what he created us to be. The Bible talks about the, the, the fact that we are the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works, as God has before ordained that we walk in them. As a human being, you were created for good works. You were created to walk in righteousness and in holiness. So sin is an injury to God. It is a rebellion against God and our creation. And sin is first and foremost spiritual. And if sin is spiritual... The offering for sin must be spiritual, okay? The reparation um, for the injury that has been caused. Uh, to restore fellowship, there must be an equitable reparation for the injury that is caused, okay? You know, in Ezekiel 18.20, the Bible says that the soul that sins shall die. The soul that sins shall die. Sin is the result of our soul yielding to the desires of the devil. And when I say our soul, I'm not even just um, I'm, I'm focusing on the soul. I'm using the soul genetically. Um, generically. It, 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 is, it is our spiritual path because you are a spiritual being. You are, you are, you are spirit in composition. Yeah? That decision to sin comes from your spiritual path. It's not coming from your flesh and blood, 
okay? So that it is our soul yielding to the desires of the devil that causes sin. So the atonement for sin must be spiritual. The atonement of sin, for sin must be spiritual. For there to be forgiveness, for there to be reparation, uh, there must be a spiritual atonement for sin that is spiritual. So the blood is always about the redemption of the soul. For atonement to be possible, a soul must be offered to God for that life that had sinned. And not just any soul, but a pure soul. For atonement to be possible, for there to be a restoration of any kind of fellowship, A soul must be offered, okay, life for life. A soul must be offered for that life, and not just any soul, but a pure soul. So an innocent soul must, be, must offer itself to satisfy God's judgment and God's justice for the damage that has been caused by the sin of a soul. If you look at Exodus 12, the very first Passover in Egypt and, and, and God's instruction to Moses and to the children of Israel. In Exodus 12 verse 1, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself. Every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small, um, according to the house of his father, a lamb for if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall take, um, make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat. Re remember it says that this lamb shall be without blemish. The New Living Translation says, this lamb shall have no defects, okay? So it is not just about the blood of the lamb. It is about a lamb that has no defects, okay? It needs to be a pure lamb. Otherwise, its blood will not be effective, yeah? Um, if you look again at another example um, in Leviticus again, of Le Leviticus chapter 5, I'm going to read from verse 2. And, you know, it's important that we understand these things. In Leviticus chapter 5, verse 2, it says, If a person touches any unclean thing, whether it is a carcass of an unclean beast, or a carcass of an unclean livestock, or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and he is unaware of it, he shall also be unclean and guilty. So whether you are aware or you are not aware, whether you've woken up this morning and you feel, or, or you go to bed at night and you feel, oh, I have not committed any sins. Whether you are aware or unaware, the Bible says that you are still guilty. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, 
whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath, and he is unaware of it. When he realizes it, then he shall be guilty in any of these matters. And it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed. A female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him um, concerning his sin. If he's not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord for his trespass which he has committed two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. And he shall bring them to the priest who shall offer that which is for the sin offering first and wring off its head from its neck, but shall not divide it completely. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar. And the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. And he shall offer the second as a burnt offering according to the prescribed manner. So the priest shall make atonement on behalf of his sin which he has committed and it shall be forgiven him. Now, remember that this was not a capital punishment. This was somebody who had, had sworn thoughtlessly or had sinned or had touched an unclean thing even without realizing it. But whatever the sin was, for there to be any kind of forgiveness, for there to be any kind of forgiveness, um, blood had to be shed and, you know, remember that blood being shed is not just blood being shed on its own. A soul was offered forever for atonement of the sin of that person. The soul, if it was a lamb that was killed or a turtle dove that its neck was, uh, his, the neck was wrong, um, that turtle dove and that goat or that lamb, their blood was shed, and not only was their blood was shed, their blood was shed until their soul was ejected from the body. You didn't see the same lamb walking around. You didn't see the same turtle dove flying around. That soul went to God. The shedding of the blood was the vehicle for the soul to be offered to God. It was that soul, that pure soul, that was being offered to God as an atonement for sin. You know, Hebrews 9.22 says this. It says, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. The New Living Translation says, in fact, according to the law of Moses... Nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You know the word remission of sins. There's no remission of sins. The word remission is the Greek word um, aphesis. Aphesis signifies the release from bondage. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no release from bondage. There is no release from imprisonment. There is no dismissal of guilt. There is no sending away. There is no forgiveness. There is no counseling out of judgment or punishment. There is no release from obligation or debt. Without blood being shed, or more accurately, should I say, without a soul being offered, because, you know, the life of the flesh is in the blood. When blood is shed, a soul is offered to God as an atonement for the sin of that soul. Without the offering of a soul, there can be no forgiveness. And that soul is offered forever. That's very important. The soul is offered forever for the satisfaction of divine justice for that, um, that particular sin. The soul is offered forever. The soul is offered forever. You know, the first blood that was shed was actually shed by God. It was shed by the Lord. Um, if you look at Genesis chapter 3 after the fall, let's go straight to the New Living Translation. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 20. It says, Then the man Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. I'll read it again. It says, the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Now, remember, this happened in Eden. Okay? So, the first animal that was killed and the first blood that was shed was actually shed and killed by Jehovah himself on behalf of humanity. You know, I can't do better than a commentary I read in my study Bible. And it simply says this, referring to this passage. It says, the covenant love of God required that innocent animals be sacrificed to provide garments of skin as a covering for Adam and Eve. This early foreshadowing of substitutionary atonement points toward the necessity of judgment upon the innocent to provide a covering for the guilty. The necessity of judgment upon the innocent to provide a covering for the guilty. It says, Adam and Eve made a vain attempt to cover themselves with their own efforts by sewing together fig leaves. However, God's order provided covering by means of a sacrifice. You know, the flesh of the animal provided covering for their bodies. But it was the offering of the soul of the animal through the shedding of its blood that provided a covering of the sin of Adam and Eve. Now that covering was not sufficient uh, to atone for their sins and bring restoration. However, um, because they were still, they were still sent out of, of the garden, they still lost their access. 
But that blood provided a temporary covering until the Lamb of God was given, who alone will provide the offering that will take away the sin um, of the world. So you see, understanding the technology of blood requires that we understand that the presence of blood signifies the presence of a soul. You know, there is, you would not find blood in anything that doesn't have a soul, that doesn't have a spiritual component to its existence. The shedding of blood speaks about the offering of a soul. When blood is shed, a soul is offered forever as atonement for that sin that was committed. Only a soul can provide atonement for sin, which is spiritual. Sin cannot be atoned for by saying, I'm sorry, I will do better. Okay? A spiritual sin can only be atoned for by the offering of an innocent soul. You can imagine the Old Testament, they killed animals all the time because they were always sinning. It was not just on uh, the Day of Atonement once a year. No, um, you know, as we saw in Leviticus, I mean, there were sin offerings, there were grain offerings, there were, there were all kinds of offerings that were done, particularly regarding sins that were committed, okay? Because physical things cannot atone for a spiritual action. Physical things cannot atone for a spiritual action. Now, I'm going to stop here today because there's quite a lot of ground to cover. But I, I wanted to, um, uh, to create this foundation of understanding about blood. Yeah? Blood is always speaking about a soul. Yeah? Because the life of the flesh, the soul of the flesh is in the blood. Blood is always speaking about a soul and is always speaking about atonement, um, a repairing, a restoration of fellowship. When we fell, when we were ejected from Eden and the way to the, the, the tree of life was protected for us, um, we, there was a requirement of blood to be shed constantly because that blood that was shed continued to cover their sins. Now, we know why it covered their sins. Uh, it wasn't just the fact that physical substance was being produced. No, it was the spiritual thing that was happening. Every time a lamb was killed, the soul of that lamb went up to God. God inspected it as a, pure, as a pure lamb. And he received it as an offering for their sin. And it could atone for their sins. It covered their sins. It did not, it did not um, um, create, um, um, it did not remove their sin from them. But it covered their sin and it got them forgiveness. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So I'm going to leave you there today, meditate on these things, and next week we will go further into understanding how the blood of Jesus Christ, how the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all was an offering for sin. The Bible says that he gave up his life as an offering for sin. So when we talk about the blood, Jesus shedding his blood for us, yes, he shed his blood, but the, the, the power of the shedding of blood was the fact that uh, his soul was, was ejected from his body and it was offered to God forever. It was offered to God forever. 
It was offered to God forever for the atonement of our sin. And, and the blood of bulls and goats could never um, create a scenario where, because it's not equivalent, the soul of a, the soul of a, um, um, a bull is not equivalent to the soul of a man. But the soul of an innocent bull, God, God received that in his grace as a vehicle to cover the sin of man until the Lamb of God, who will take away the sins of the world, was revealed. But when Jesus came, he offered his blood and shed his blood and offered his soul, his sinless soul, as an offering for sin. And that offering, once and for all, um, created restoration for man. It fully atoned for the sin of all humanity. But that's next week. We're going to spend more time uncovering that and, and, and looking at the implications of that shed blood and that offering that he made on our behalf. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our time together. Um, um, this is quite an interesting subject. It's a foundational subject um, that you and I must build on because that, the implications of that shed blood have implications for us in the area of divine protection. It has implications for us in the area of our advance as the body of Christ. Because the Bible talks about us overcoming the enemy um, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. So it is an offensive weapon and it is a defensive weapon. And we're going to look into the detail of that next week. Well, God bless you. Have a wonderful week. And don't forget to check out our website for details of the fast. Join us for the fast. You'll be glad you did. God bless you.